Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at how Fox News is being exposed as the alleged liars for pay we always suspected they were by the defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, Pod Save America, The Dean Obadiah Show, The Majority Report, NPR Politics, and The Beat, with additional members-only clips from The Young Turks and On the Media. In recent weeks, there have been a number of bombshell revelations about the inner workings of the network that have come to light as part of a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox. Rupert Murdoch, owner of Fox News, has admitted under oath that many hosts on his network endorsed Donald Trump's false claims about the 2020 election and that Trump's lawyers, like Rudy Giuliani, had used Fox to spread what he called really crazy stuff. Murdoch also admitted it was wrong for Fox to keep interviewing pro-Trump conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow. But Murdoch suggested it was done for financial, not political reasons. Murdoch said it's not red or blue, it's green. In court filings, Dominion also revealed Murdoch had given Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, confidential information about Biden's campaign ads, along with debate strategy and possible violation of election laws. Meanwhile, The New York Times has revealed details of a major firestorm within Fox after the network projected on election night in 2020 that Joe Biden had beaten Donald Trump in the state of Arizona. While Fox made the accurate call, many executives regretted making the call because it hurt Fox's ratings among Trump supporters. At one meeting held November 15, 2020, Suzanne Scott, the chief executive of Fox News Media, told others, quote, listen, it's one of the sad realities. If we hadn't called Arizona, those three or four days following Election Day, our ratings would have been higher she said. We're joined now by Angela Caruso. He is president of the watchdog group Media Matters, which recently sent a Federal Elections Commission complaint against Fox News based on evidence from the Dominion lawsuit. Angela, welcome to Democracy Now! Start off by talking about what your filing is about. It's basically asking the FEC to investigate the claims that came out of the Dominion filings uh, and then to take the appropriate action. It's it's completely within the the what the letter of the law says that the the Campaigns Act is pretty explicit here. It says that you can't give anything of value to a political candidate that's not, you know, tracked, that's not locked. And in this case, in similar circumstances, it's found that these kinds of private information that could be used for political purposes is a thing of value. Um, and so it seems to me black and white. And so what we wanted to make sure happened is that Fox doesn't, you know, sort of skate accountability because nobody went through and sort of nudged the FEC to take the action that it needed to take, which is to investigate and to and to and to just basically apply the law here. So talk about what we know so far. I mean, people are leading very busy and stressed lives. It's hard to keep following up on this $1.6 billion lawsuit. Why don't you talk about the highlights of the remarkable email trail that has been released? What Sean Hannity and um, Tucker Carlson, um, Laura Ingram knew at the time about the lies that were being told by Trump and his supporters and the kind of pressure they brought on any reporter who dared to question because it was damaging the Fox brand. 
Yeah, I, I think that to put it just sort of simply, they knew. They all knew. Rupert, all the way from Rupert Murdoch on down to the show producers, they knew what they were saying was not true, that it was actually a lie. um, And they did it anyway. And, you know, just to take a step back and say what this means in practice. Well, Fox went from sort of calling some election results to accepting the election results to around that mid-November time period. And the following two weeks after that, they did more than 600 segments in just that last two week period alone, specifically attacking the election results, promoting the Dominion conspiracies. Um, And so in their coverage, what they really helped do was build the scaffolding for the big lie, which became the sort of fuel for the January 6th insurrection. So that's what it meant in practice. Behind the scenes, they really did know. And they didn't just know, they were deriding the conspiracy theories. Um, They were attacking the promoters of it. uh, And you sort of alluded to some of that in your your intro, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, who's one of the lawyers that was pushing it. Um, They called her a lunatic on the same day that they had her on the show. Uh, on their shows. They were texting each other, admonishing the ridiculousness of this, but they did it anyway. Um, they, they had it on the air anyway. And worse, Rupert Murdoch and Fox executives were penalizing um, other Fox personalities that were trying to either sort of soften the claims that that Fox News was pushing about Dominion and about the broader sort of election Um as well as punishing them. I mean, some of them were explicitly punished. Um, so they said that your coverage is too hard. It's too aggressive. You need to change that immediately, almost in real time. I mean, before the show had aired, no emails and messages were being sent from top executives to show producers telling on-air talent to get it together. So, I mean, they knew. And that's how I would put it simply, is that they knew and they did it anyway. And I feel like, you know, the trail of evidence here is so overwhelming that um, it, you know, I think Fox is in some some real legal trouble. And talk about what you mean by saying it's an illegal corporate campaign contribution. What you're not supposed to do is give anything of value. That's why we have to have, you know, all these FEC disclosures. When you give a political donation, it gets tracked, right? Um, In this case, if you give, if you try to get around that disclosure law, that donation law by giving something that is the equivalent of money that you would need to spend money on, or that could be considered something of value for for a political campaign, you're either not supposed to do it or it's supposed to be disclosed. Um, And it's it's pretty clear. So it is an illegal campaign contribution. And I, I think what's significant about this is not only that it's clear in this one instance that Fox News sort of, you know, broke the law, but the part that I think struck me about all of these complaints together and all these filings was that um, it seems so normal. Nothing about what they were saying to each other was considered extraordinary. So when, you know, the, when Rupert Murdoch takes an, an ad and runs away with it to give it to a political campaign, nobody inside Fox seemed to think that that was weird. There's no communication saying, hey, should we be doing that? Is that going to be a concern? When there were instructions to change coverage to help Republicans, I mean, Rupert Murdoch was literally sending messages like that. Um, nobody said, wow, that's weird. Should we be doing this? And I think my big takeaway is that I don't imagine this is the only instance of this. Um, and that, in fact, it, it feels like what we're seeing here is sort of a key, is a keyhole view to how Fox News treats every single other major issue and story. Um, and that means they operate more like a partisan operation than a, than, a, than a news network. And I think there's probably a lot more complaints that could be filed as these things start to unfold. Angelo, in light of all this, can you talk about the Republican House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, giving exclusive access to all of the January 6th footage from, you know, the uh, closed-circuit TV footage all over the Capitol and beyond to Tucker Carlson of Fox. 
And I, I think that what it, it's two things, how we got there and what it means. How we got there is it, it's a reflection of the fact that the right wing media with Fox as its crown jewel and the Republican Party are really fused together. They're not really two distinct entities that are operating in parallel. They really are one part of one pill, one big political you know, conglomeration. Um, and so this was actually a major concession that McCarthy had to make during his speaker fight. Um, it was one of the things that far right, some of the far right Republicans who were echoing calls from the right wing media were demanding, and he conceded to that. So the reason that it even happened is that the right wing media pushed a few of their big sort of Republican leaders to then make this an issue during the speaker fight, he conceded. So that's how we got here, is that it was sort of a creature of the right wing media. And we have what 30 means, seconds. What it means is that it's an official rewrite. It's an official rewrite of what happened on January 6th, and they're using Tucker Carlson as sort of the, the, the chief storyteller of that new version of what took place there. And I think we all know what it's going to be. It's going to be lies and conspiracies that it was a false flag pushed by the Democrats and the news media. And the fact that this is the people's footage, I mean, this is the footage of the Capitol being handed to this private corporation? Yeah, and it's not being done in a transparent way. It feels much more transactional to me than transparent. For my first draft pick here, I'm going with the source of the Dominion hoax, which apparently, Tommy, is a ghost. <laughs> One of the major revelations that has come out of the billion-dollar defamation lawsuit between the Dominion voting systems and Fox News is that the basis for some of Trump lawyer Sidney Powell's election fraud claims was one email from a woman who believed she talked to, quote, the wind. On November 7th at 6 p.m., Sidney Powell forwarded this wind woman's email to Fox News host Maria Bartiromo. The very next day, Bartiromo had Sidney Powell on her show to talk about it. This is the foundation upon which the entire the whole thing, the entire thing was born. It is batshit crazy. So the, the main lawyer for Trump pushing this garbage is Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell told Maria Bartiromo that her source was this random emailer, and then Maria booked Sidney Powell on the show anyway. So Fox hosts knew this whole thing was nonsense, and they just put it on TV. Yeah, she's like, no credible sourcing whatsoever. How's Thursday at four for you? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. She's like, that satisfies all <sighs> my qualifications. Come on on. This one's coming from my, my deep in my rage in my soul. Uh, it's pull the Arizona call from Brett Baer. Okay, here's Brett Baer hard newsman at Fox News saying they should pull the Arizona call for Joe Biden, even if it, quote, gives us major egg, and we put it back in his, meaning Trump's column. So the hard news guy is advocating they pull a call from Joe Biden made by their experts because he's feeling political pressure. The thing, too, is that Brett Baer was Fox's only veil of legitimacy. Yep. And now that that's lifted, Fox has no excuse None. to like pretend that Fox is anything other than a propaganda arm of the Republican Party. Okay, so uh, for my next draft pick, I'm going with Tucker hates Trump passionately. Uh, let's play the clip on this one. We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. The conversation continues. Referring to Trump, Carlson says, I hate him passionately. I can't handle much more of this. And there's one more point. That whole quote by Tucker Carlson actually goes on. And he said, uh, we're all pretending that we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. Mm -hmm. But come on, there really isn't an upside to Trump. And we got like this rare nugget of honesty from Tucker Carlson. And it's, it's ironic that, that when they're not on television, we get these, uh, these morsels of truth suddenly. But 
on the night that we found out about uh, these revelations from Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump had posted uh, a post on the Truth a Social, truth. and. Uh, he said, great job by Tucker Carlson tonight. The unselect committee of political hacks and thugs has been totally discredited, blah, blah, blah. He goes on to, to fawn all over Tucker Carlson. And so he clearly hadn't read the news about what Tucker had said to him. But the world, for, for the world's most fragile ego to then go on and actually compliment a guy who we now know was just shitting on him in private, I mean, he's just going to love that. Okay, so for my next one, I'm going to choose Sidney Powell is a complete nut. Okay. So we have some transcripts here. I'm going to read them. Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Tucker Carlson wrote to Laura Ingram on November 18th, 2020. Ingram responded, Sydney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. To which Tucker Carlson replied, our viewers are good people and they believe it. This kind of is self-explanatory. I mean, first of all, I think the last part is the most damning and they yeah. believe it because they admit that regardless of what they put out to their audience, their audience is going to believe it anyway. Even though they knew the truth about who Sidney Powell was, who Rudy Giuliani was, all of the conspiracies that they were spewing, the fact that they put it out knowing that their audience was just going to take it all in anyway and believe all of it anyway is just like the most damning part of all of this. Most journalists view their job ultimately as seeking the truth and sharing it with the world. It's just clear that no one at Fox, at least Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, care at all about those things. Okay, that's enraging. I'm going to go uh, with a similar one, which is Hannity and Ducey mock, quote, news. <laughs> Do you want to be Sean? And I'll be Steve because I got the blonde. That only makes sense. So I'll be Sean Hannity here. Tommy will be Steve Ducey. Yes, please. And, uh, and here we go. Quote, unquote, news destroyed us. Every day. You don't piss off the base. Every day. They don't care. Nope. They are journalists. <laughs> I've warned them for years. We might as well tell people to stop watching at 9 a.m. and turn the TV back on tonight at 9. It's going to be bad. Mark my words. They know there is nothing we can do to fix it. Nope. Too late. The only thing we can hope for is Trump to come on Fox and say it's his favorite channel. That's what happens in the dream sequence. <laughs> Good luck with that. Like, I can dream. That is so weird. My last three lines were so weird. I couldn't, yeah. I didn't even feel comfortable saying them. It, it's, I mean, it's like a badly written play. The I mean, thing. we also performed it as the a badly thing. written yeah, play. Yeah, we did. We were great. But it's very, it's a very strange way to like text another person in private. The key point here is look, I mean, no one's calling Sean Hannity uh, a real reporter. Steve Ducey is on Fox and Friends, which, you know, I think the network considers that like an entertainment show, essentially, because they're so stupid. But everyone who watches Fox News thinks they're getting news to some extent. And they are mocking journalists as a whole. They're mocking <laughs> yeah. sort of the concept of news. It, it sort of lays bare the whole, the whole problem here. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK. 
just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of the left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left. We've learned about Fox News through depositions and through emails and a treasure trove of documents if you were to go on msnbc and knowingly lie to destabilize our democracy how do you think that we were received by executives at msnbc i was gonna say i don't know if i would make it to the next commercial block i would certainly i would they would probably let me finish the segment and then in the in in the commercial block they would be like that airport music where it just kind of comes on or like that kind of like you know elevator music where it comes on and like uh, due to an unforeseen circumstance, this show has been canceled. We will see you back at a re- regularly scheduled programming tomorrow night. Who knows? I mean, honestly, first of all, you're not talking about you're not talking about getting facts wrong, right? That is that is something we all do. Every journalist makes mistakes. Everybody reports things that are inaccurate or incomplete. What you are talking about is this unbelievable split screen dichotomy where the host on the air is acknowledging confirming that what we're putting on the air to our viewers demonstrably false and we know it to be false but we still have to do it anyway and what's scary is the motivation of why they're doing it it's not it's not like for example for example People are saying like, hey, let's be let's be extra skeptical of these results. Let's let's really just let's really test the veracity of the outcome of our election because we want to make sure that our democracy comes out of this stronger. I'm even willing to concede that. I'm willing to even say, you know what, if they just all sat in a room and be like, let's be the counter narrative just for the sake of making sure that we are the ones that are not that are not being spoon fed the results and let's test the results outcome. Go for it. But what you're telling me is you knew it was fake. You knew it was a lie. You knew it's not true. You're calling the people perpetuating uh, uh, perpetrating this lie and perpetuating it liars. Uh, you, you know, you're calling Rudy Giuliani insane. You're calling Sidney Powell insane. You're acknowledging that if you reverse course and start reporting the truth, your audience is going to peel off to go to Newsmax, as Tucker Carlson, su- Tucker Carlson suggested. And you're punishing the reporters who fact check the president. So, my, my God, like you, this is a different threshold. You're no longer a news organization. You're a, at this point, you are a state controlled propaganda machine. You are not an independent news organization that has your own editorial guidelines that you are pursuing to try to be rigorous or counter narrative or contrarian. No, you're not.
Trace the Murdoch, I guess, brand or, you know, a lineage in the context of politics, because this is a, um, a really, I mean, Rupert, to, for the most part, has fundamentally changed not just our politics, but like politics, broadly speaking. I mean, is that an, that's not really an overstatement, yeah. is it? No, not at all. I mean, he is, you know, like I think without question, the most powerful media mogul in the English speaking world and sort of like what that he kind of leverages that power through like literally dozens and dozens of newspapers around the world, you know, numerous news channels, international newswire. I mean, until recently, a massive Hollywood studio. And basically, he is He's a businessman. He's a kind of an empire builder in the sense that he is all about kind of territorial conquest, wants to just keep growing and growing and growing. And he's also a conservative. I mean, in in many ways, the ideology is in some ways kind of less important to him than the advancing of his business agenda. But, you know, it's very much there. And he is constantly kind of pushing history to the right. And really what's happened in particular in the last couple of years is that he has sort of seized on this right-wing populist wave that we sort of first saw with like the improbable rise of Donald Trump. But of course, we also saw with Brexit and really we saw all over the world with kind of right-wing authoritarians getting elected far and wide. Like he really seized on that opportunity and, and sort of rode that wave and you know, profited from it and also not just profited from it, but really kind of accelerated it and amplified it. And I want to get to that because it was that to me seemed like there was a certain amount of improvisation based upon what you've written as to his jumping on that. But let me go back a little bit before that, because I feel like there have been media moguls that have influenced politics in some measure or another. Maybe not ones that have done so, you know, when you talk about Australia and New Zealand and UK and then the States. But it's also been over the course of even the United States, which is the, yeah, yeah, Yeah. we're talking decades and decades. Yeah, yeah, and No, it's been going on forever. There seems to me to be no historical precedent for someone who has had this level of durability and this level of sort of vanguard quality to what they're doing, right? Like he's not been following the political trends or safely entrenched. He has been blazing a really, in my opinion, horrible new path. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think, you know, another thing to, to keep in mind, too, is he's done it across these mediums. You know, in the old days, media moguls tended to work in like one medium in one country. So you had like a newspaper baron or you had a guy who owned some radio. But, you know, Murdoch has like gone like across all of the platforms and has gone all over the world. So it's like a whole other kind of media mogul. And of course, now we're living in a world where just because of the nature of media, because it's just, you know, shot all over the world instantaneously, media moguls are just kind of inherently more powerful than they've ever been. Let's talk about that sort of the ideological sort of businessman divide. And maybe there's more redundancy to those the two things than maybe I'm assuming. But yeah, no, that's that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, but tease that out for us because, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the easiest way to think about that is so you have a guy who is his like agenda his like the main the, the top five things on his business agenda is grow by grow by. And 
In order to do that, he needs to make sure that there are no regulations in his path, right? That there are no, whether it's kind of anti-monopoly rules or anti-foreign ownership rules or whatever it may be that might be standing in his way of growing his empire, he needs to get them out of his way. So it's not surprising that he has historically championed a right-wing anti-government, anti-regulatory agenda. So the two sort of work together. And it's not just a question of expedience. It's just consistent with what he thinks is right. I should be able to monopolize this stuff. At one point, there was also, he had uh, basically got a waiver. I mean, I remember like going back to like maybe two decades ago when uh, Ted Kennedy was preventing him from owning both like, I guess, Fox, maybe Fox, a Fox affiliate, and maybe it was the Post. And he blew through all of it, didn't he? Yep. That's what he does. And, and, you know, he even got um, Reagan to fast track his citizenship application because he needed to be a U.S. citizen to own TV stations. So, you know, when he wanted to get into the U.S. TV market, he went to Reagan and just boom, he became an American citizen. And, you know, he did this also in the U.K. I mean, like in, in particular in his early years there in the 80s with Margaret Thatcher. I mean, he was constantly violating anti-monopoly rules and she just gave him a pass. So, I mean, that's just the power that came with his empire, his ability to kind of punish his enemies and reward his allies. It's just like you kind of wanted to be on his good side. And so you did his bidding for him. That's the thing that's sort of like, uh, I guess, maybe foreshadows the world of social media on some level, where the content and the marketing are the same in a way, right? I mean, his media empire, it seems to me, both functioned to build his business by being political and was political yeah. in and of itself. Does that make sense? No. That's, yeah, no, that's right. And there is like, inside there is also kind of like a fun contradiction, which is that in order to get government out of his way, he had to like cozy up to governments. So his playbook was basically to get in with politicians, presidents, prime ministers, whomever. And once he kind of had them, then he would just pursue this kind of anti-government agenda. Right. Well, that's sort of the old school uh, neoliberal uh, play. The Mont Pelerin people would argue that's exactly the play. You want to make government work just for a narrow set of interests and then exactly. unshackle yep. everything else. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. Can you explain to us what's going on here? Dominion Voting Systems, which you have covered pretty extensively, is suing Fox for $1.6 billion, saying... All of this broadcasting caused major, major, major damage to their business. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And and Dominion Voting Systems is based in Denver. And so this is a company that sells voting equipment to nearly 30 states. And it was it was shortly after the 2020 election that these conspiracies started circulating, that the company had switched votes from Trump to Biden. And I, I covered it very initially early on because one of those big false claims 
focused on a specific former Dominion employee, and that's Eric Coomer. And these claims said that he was the man who personally manipulated votes across the country. And Coomer was the first person, even before Dominion, to file a defamation lawsuit. So that's ongoing against pro-Trump allies, media outlets, the Trump campaign, Sidney Powell, a whole host of, of people. And what he's claimed and what Dominion is claiming is that the scope of these lies and the impact it's had on their employees, the culture, all the people who work in elections. Coomer has faced so many death threats and harassment. He's had to go into hiding. He doesn't work for Dominion anymore. So the real world implications of this mis and disinformation is, you know, it, it's so broad in scope and it's still continuing to this day. Well, what is the quick Fox response and defense of all of this as all of these revelations are, are, are being made public? So there, there's multi-layers. The, some of the most important ones quickly are that they say, look, we were reporting inherently newsworthy claims. That is that there was fraud in national elections by inherently newsworthy people. That is the then sitting president, Trump. And that were we to inhibit that, even if these claims are wild, then it's going to redound to hurt whomever in the press are doing that at a later point to other major political leaders. In addition, they say Dominion is merely cherry picking. It's taking things out of context. It's almost misconstruing things to a point where it's putting words into the mouths of people. And this was a more plausible argument until this week when we had so many hundreds of documents, so many, so many pages uh, to, to go through. We're still sorting through and we're still getting more even as we're taping this right now. I'm seeing them ping on my laptop uh, from lawyers that what we're learning is a sort of like, you know, little different tiles being assembled in enormous mosaic and the picture is coming closely into view. And I, I would tell you, Scott, there are two stories here. What is legal about the lawsuit as has Dominion met the legal standard for proving defamation, which is awfully tough and which Fox is right about may have implications for other news organizations and the separate story of what we're learning about this potent business enterprise and political animal that is Fox News that wraps itself in this journalistic bunting. And, and Betsy, you've, you've reported on Dominion, but you've also done a lot of reporting on, on local elections officials who have felt incredible strain over the last few years. And I think you're a good person to talk to about this. These, you know, the, these hosts go on these shows and make these claims that they know are not true. People are on the other side absorbing this information from their TVs, from their phones, and they are taking real-world actions because of them. This is not just something being said into a vacuum. This is rippling out throughout the country. There's plenty of voters I've talked to that you know follow the news, but it's not a huge part of their life. And, and they said, I didn't realize election fraud was such a huge problem in this country until I heard it from President Trump after the election. And we heard this from a former Republican clerk in Colorado, and I've been covering this case from the beginning. Um, she allegedly tampered with her county's Dominion voting machines. This is months after the 2020 election. But she had been hearing from constituents. She's from a county called Mesa County in western Colorado that's very conservative, and people were concerned about voter fraud, asked their county clerk to look into it. Uh, she is now facing a trial this summer on 10 state criminal charges. There's an ongoing federal investigation. Uh, her individual case has had big ramifications for the state, including a new law that was signed that tries to 
prevent mis- and disinformation and increases penalties for insider election security threats. And we've also seen this change how clerks do their jobs and the efforts they're taking to fight mis- and disinformation, and also just from regular voters, less trust in the system, less trust that their votes can count, efforts to audit elections from volunteers going door to door to try to personally see if they can uncover fraud. So I don't think this is the the end of it. I think the temperatures dialed down a little bit with a lot of the election deniers not making gains nationally, politically in the last election. But as one clerk said, all it takes is one candidate to ignite this in full force. And people are still spreading this disinformation. There's a big ecosystem that has not gone away. This case goes to trial or is expected to go to trial next month, right? Yeah, it's uh, supposed to go to trial in mid-April. What are the big picture questions that that you're looking at here, whether it comes to the future of Fox News or whether it comes to, you know, the tricky, murky area of First Amendment law and and libel lawsuits? So I'm doing a split track mind where I'm thinking about the legal implications. And I've written about the fact that there are some media lawyers. It's not uniform, but some media lawyers who are worried that. The news media, reporters writ large, will pay a price if Fox is to lose this case for defamation, that it will make it easier for people to sue successfully and to constrict robust political reporting and speech. That said, you know, we're also looking for the degree to which Fox News is held to account. And a big jury verdict, you know, saying that they're holding him liable for defaming Dominion and a big dollar figure does that in a sense. A bigger version would encompass in some ways the Murdochs and Fox News acknowledging they got something wrong and did something wrong, apologizing and keeping faith with facts finally after years, after a lawsuit, after all this scandal. Because what's going to happen, I think, is that they're going to do everything they can to avoid making an apology and a public acknowledgement. They are not even covering this as a story on their own network. Their own audience would know nothing about it if that's what they're relying on for news. And I think they would want to sail ahead holding as tightly as they can to this audience and take the hit in the rest of the public, which is to say an enormous reputational hit for Fox, stripping it of the veneer of respectability of the conventional journalism that has sort of uneasily embraced Fox as part of the family. To our special report tonight, which is about journalism and lies. It's about defamation and this big case that Fox News is on defense over, but it is about so much more than that. It's about some of the people involved, including Tucker Carlson, but it's also about more than Tucker. But to understand all of this, we're going to show you not just some of the new, hot, damning texts, receipts, and evidence that has been in the news, but we're going to go deeper tonight because it matters. And we begin with Mr. Tucker Carlson as our guide. In the absence of any universally recognized standard or source of news, what happens? Well, rumors take the place of news. And so ultimately you have an electorate that is really poorly informed and incredibly suspicious. And in that environment, all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories bloom and take the place of facts. Fact check, true. Now, that was 14 years ago, Mr. Carlson discussing standards, news, conspiracy theories, and the wider implications. And I'm going to show you tonight why some of what he has long said before is actually incriminating for him now, but also why it matters on a broader basis. 
Mr. Carlson was talking then, long before he was embroiled in what is now a case about lies, what's technically called defamation, a suit against his network, including his comments, material, his evidence is all in there for over a billion dollars. Now, to take one example you may have seen, there were text messages that showed Carlson did not believe the, quote, crazy stuff that the Trump lawyers were pushing and that he and other hosts platformed or potentially endorsed. Indeed, one of the questions at trial is whether they can be convicted of sorts, be held responsible of endorsing it. And there's a gap between what Carlson tells his audience and what he apparently believes, what he privately admits. He wasn't getting hired to host another TV show, so he created his own media, a political news website called The Daily Caller in 2010. And he argued it would be a conservative answer to popular sites at the time like Huffington Post. And he said it wouldn't be partisan. Quote, our goal is not to get Republicans elected. We are not going to suck up to people in power. That's disgusting, he told The Washington Post. So that's 2010 Tucker. And think about it. What he said then was that he was going to stand for exactly the factual mission that today's Tucker opposes. And the point's not just hypocrisy. The point is that Carlson's own standard informs his potential liability in court for what he's doing now. And it shines a kind of a weird and perhaps troubling light on how this all works, at least for people like him who are willing to tell you things that the Dominion suit suggests are misleading or false and that you know with your own eyes aren't true when it comes to his January 6th denialism, his trutherism. Now, he took... His mission, though, at that time, remember when he just said he wasn't going to do what he's doing now, he said he wanted more accuracy in conservative media. And accuracy in any type of media is great. Now, Carlson was briefly onto something. As the reports told it, there wasn't an audience. And within a few months, Tucker's website was pushing, quote, fake news, an outrage-driven commentary. So that's a contradiction publicly exposed. And you can't erase the Internet. So we have what Tucker Carlson said the site was going to be about and what it turned into. And with that pivot, he found results. The site we checked, quadrupling its page views and total audience in two years, according to The New York Times, which we know is a site that at least then Tucker Carlson thought was valid. Now, he may have taken that lesson when he did make it over to Fox, the place that he once said would be hard to imagine working at. Now, Carlson had joined Fox initially as a contributor, which could mean anything, right? Those guests you see who pop in and out. But then he began co-hosting Fox and Friends Weekend and then got his evening show there in 2016. Now, at the time, Carlson may have looked to some like a kind of journeyman ball player who struck out on these other teams. I just showed you more of the history than people sometimes realize, which may inform more of the grievance and pivots that he's executing on. But Carlson had basically tried everything, including pitching what he called accurate news to conservatives and concluding that did not work. So he offered some of the most incendiary and misleading material available at the time on Fox, and that formula brought in viewers. He then overtook Hannity's slot as the highest rated host with the largest audience, not only in Fox at the time, but as TV Newser put it, the largest audience in cable news history. Now, that's a big deal. So what happened? Carlson built that audience very similarly to how he made that pivot that we showed you at that website, The Daily Caller. 
putting views above basically everything, catering to the extreme right, welcoming conspiracy theories on air. He has been criticized by independent experts and anti-hate groups for how he has repeatedly pushed that great replacement theory I mentioned, which is something that argues basically that there is a secret cabal of evil Jews and racial minorities who are going to replace the voting public. It is hateful stuff. Now, Fox News and Tucker have built the current following on these kind of supersized lies and, of course, with an alliance with Republicans, which is the very thing that Tucker always said initially, previously, he opposed. I actually love Donald Trump as a guy. And I, I know Trump. I've known Trump for 20 years because I work in the media, you know. And I just have always gotten along with him. Trump is, like, totally charming and engaging and fun and interesting. That was three months ago, and you can compare it to what he said privately, that he hates Trump passionately, that he can't wait to get past him. That's his own words, and there's a contradiction there. you got to wonder sometimes, how does he actually feel if he is a human being here, right? What does he make of all this? And he is literally living out the thing he used to criticize, the right-wing shtick, the lies, the type of media that does not do what he said they needed, which was to have institutions of accuracy. Does he feel like he's lying every day? And if he did feel that way, would he ever just kind of have it seep out in a kind of a projection-filled tirade? Something like this? Imagine forcing yourself to tell lies all day about everything in ways that were so transparent and so outlandish that there is no way the people listening to you could possibly believe anything you said. Then imagine doing that again and again and again every day of your professional life for your entire life. Could you do that? We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now! laying out not only the defamation case against Fox, but also the potential for their election lies to be seen as illegal campaign contributions. Pod Save America highlighted some of their favorite absurdities from Fox hosts' private texts. The Dean Obadiah show emphasized that if Fox motivation had been an overabundance of journalistic caution, then their actions would have been much more forgivable. The Majority Report discussed the history and legacy of Rupert Murdoch's media empire. NPR Politics looked at just some of the real-life impacts of spreading election lies, and The Beat traced Tucker Carlson's career from advocate for honest journalism to exactly that which he had warned against. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Young Turks describing a separate defamation lawsuit against Fox by an individual they'd singled out as having fixed the election. Lou Dobbs and Sidney Powell made a lot of crazy claims in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Lies in support of the big lie claims that the election had been stolen in many different ways. You might remember some of them, big ones like that. Somehow Hugo Chavez had rigged the election so Biden would win. But the thing is, they actually made more specific claims than that. In fact, they identified a particular Venezuelan man as being a part of this, and that is now biting them in the behinds because that man is suing them for $250 million. And on the media, 
describing yet another lawsuit the Murdoch family is involved in. It's related to the ongoing lawsuit in that Dominion's legal team draw a direct line from the heated rhetoric of Fox hosts to the January 6, 2021 violent break-in at the U.S. Capitol, and that forms the basis of an entirely different defamation suit filed roughly 10,000 miles away from the scene of the crime, brought not against the Murdochs, but by a Murdoch. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you, and this message is in response to episode 1546 about decolonization and re-indigenization. As I was listening to the parallels of the Hawaiian people and the Scottish Highlanders, I began to consider what other contemporary parallels exist. The romantic in me finds allegiance with all indigenous people across the globe who have been victims of colonization, and they have my support in historical review and in their continued struggles to reclaim their cultural ties to land and people. I look down my nose at the colonizers who were so small-minded to not see the beauty in these cultures that we get to admire from afar. And then I considered West Virginia. Alabama, Florida, I considered the stereotypes I had about some of those cultures and how irreconcilable their way of life seems compared to how I envision society progressing. Backwards, insular and pig-headed, I question how they treat their land, how they treat their people. And it's not just regional, but also a culture and psychology along the political spectrum that means that I side-eye many of my neighbors as ignorant. Brainwashed savages who worship at the altar of Fox News and engage in primitive rites of passage. As somebody who has always found allegiance with the plight of the colonized, I started to see uncomfortable parallels in myself with the role of the colonizer. Are my ideas of culture and society more important than theirs? Is it wrong to conflate regional culture with ideology or are the two inseparable? It would be wonderful to fold the impoverished into our ideals of a more social society. But what's the point if they don't want to join that kind of society? I admit there's only relative coherence to these thoughts, but I feel like there's something there just beyond where I've taken it. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleft.com. And that message we just heard was sent in on our Discord server by Dr. Whiskers, so I guess that's another way that you can send in a message if you like. Uh, Dr. Whiskers, not necessarily their real name, but I had some very specific thoughts in response to that message, so I wanted to share them here on the show. It just so happens that I read a book last summer that somewhat addresses Dr. Whisker's thoughtful self-reflection. The book is called American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America by Colin Woodard. The thesis of the book is that the cultural and historical realities of different areas of the United States are obscured by the political lines that we have drawn and the oversimplified versions of history that we tell ourselves. In essence, current regional culture is shaped by historic 
regional culture, and particularly in the U.S., regions have been shaped by immigration and westward expansion. But to really understand local culture, it's the details we usually skip over that matter the most. State lines, for instance, give a totally misleading idea about cultural boundaries. And thanks to the Civil War, we continue to oversimplify the entire area east of the Mississippi as basically two cultural blocks, the North and the South. But the book argues that they would both be better understood as about four distinct cultural blocks each. For instance, Massachusetts and New York are both thought of today as very liberal states, but that completely obscures the cultural differences that go way back to the foundings of you know, Boston and New York. Massachusetts had a large population of Protestant Quakers who believed strongly in the power of government to provide for the common good. Sounds familiar to modern liberal ears. Uh, they also had a strong aversion to slavery. But at the same time, they were not that big on multiculturalism. Meanwhile, New York City was a huge slaving port, but was also a cultural mixing bowl from the very beginning. So unsurprisingly, the abolition movement began in Massachusetts, but was not universally supported in those northern states, while New York has always been very multi-ethnic, but Boston remains a very white dominant city, well known for being one of the most racist cities in the north to this very day. So that's an example of cultural differences we usually overlook. Here's an example of cultural similarities that are rarely explained. So it's generally recognized that California is often mentioned in the same breath as those New England states in terms of their culture and politics. In, in fact, my partner Amanda is from the Boston area, and I grew up in Sacramento, California, but we share a huge amount of cultural crossover. For instance, you know, we both basically have that Massachusetts Quaker mindset about the positive power of government to provide for the common good. We are both undoubtedly products of the cultures we were raised in, but why would these two areas so far apart be so similar? Well, here's the short version of that story. In the mid-1800s, New Englanders had begun immigrating to the West Coast territories where they became uh, the political elite in Oregon, for instance, uh, which explains why there's a Salem and Portland in Oregon, namesakes of the cities in Massachusetts and Maine. But then the 1849 gold rush created an explosion of population in San Francisco, and let's just say they weren't sending their best. The gold hunters were often filling the pubs, brothels, gambling houses, getting into knife fights, criminal gangs, drunken parties. So the word of this culture emerging in San Francisco got back to the, the Quakers of New England, and suddenly they felt they had a new mission to fulfill and a new land to save. Quoting from the book, the missionaries and their Yankee followers regarded their journey as yet another pilgrim-like errand into the wilderness, a chance to erect a second city on the hill. Sons and daughters of New England, you are the representatives of a land which is the model for every other. Presbyterian minister Timothy Dwight Hunt told San Francisco's New England Society in 1852. Here is our colony. No higher ambition could urge us to noble deeds than on the basis of the colony of Plymouth to make California the Massachusetts of the Pacific. 
end quote. And so, in essence, it is to those missionaries that Amanda and I have to give thanks for our cultural compatibility. Anyway, this is a long way of saying to Dr. Whiskers that he is correct for thinking that our understanding of multiculturalism should go deeper than simply colonizer and colonized. Reading that book absolutely made me appreciate the various cultures in the U.S. and better understand them as having been born out of specific historic contexts. Now, I don't go so far as to embrace cultural or moral relativism and go down the path of trying to equate all cultures as equally valid. I mean, some cultures have genuinely abhorrent norms in them that I think violate human rights. But it's not a binary choice between the idea that all cultures are equal or the opposite extreme, that there must logically be one culture that is superior above all others. As we learned from the Scots word duhas, human culture is inextricably linked to the land, and there are a whole lot of different landscapes in the world, therefore there are a whole lot of different cultures that are perfectly suited to their specific locations. And with that understanding, it's an absurd thought to imagine that one culture should be thought of as superior and should become dominant over all others. So I think we can hold these ideas in our mind at the same time. Different regions of the country have different cultural values for reasons that can be traced back hundreds of years, just like we think of different regions of the world. We're not going to upend that anytime soon, right? Pro-government New Englanders aren't about to convince small government folks out in the mountain time zone to adopt that New England communitarian mindset, and we should probably give up on that dream. But we big government liberals could also find appreciation for the existence of these regional views to see it as a form of multiculturalism, just as we see value in the cultures of other countries and peoples. We can understand that there's always something to be learned from other cultures because there's always a reason why a culture has developed the way it has. And at the same time, we can continue to argue that we have better ideas on any number of topics. That's not a contradiction, but it is a better basis for establishing mutual respect between cultures. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text message to 202-999-3991 or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And you can join the discussion on our Discord community. A link to join us in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.